You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Back in the day, before I was a teenager, before I had a cell phone, before I had a pager, this unit would sit and listen to hip-hop. My pop used to say it reminded him of bebop. (laughs) You recognize that voice. That voice is the voice of Alan Shoes. He's the voice of books for NPR's All Things Considered. He's not only a master of his own voice, he's a master of many voices. He writes nonfiction fiction. He's uh, conquered all realms. His newest book, is Song of Slaves in the Desert. His newest nonfiction book is A Trance After Breakfast. Song of Slaves in the Desert is just a remarkable work, and we're going to talk about it because I think I have some fairly radical opinions about it that will probably upset him. <laughs> but first, uh, Alan, would you like You're going to give me feedback, you mean? Yeah, I'm going to give you some feedback. <laughs> I think I already did that, didn't I? Yeah. Uh, Alan, why don't you read from the book? Okay, I'll read the uh, opening uh, first. When you open a book, it just comes out of nowhere unless you read the blurbs or the jackets. I, I tend not to. I um, agree. I never read a dust jacket blurb. Um, and w- it's, it's kind of cheating. I mean, if you have a child and, and you get a little note that comes along with it saying, B-plus student uh, will end up smoking a lot of reefer before he reforms and goes to law school. Um, Here, let me help you with that. I mean, there's a poem of um, Horace. Horace, he says, I prefer not to know what the future is going to bring. And he says, don't ask. Scire nefas is the Latin. Do not ask. Or, you know, that's, I always think of that. My mother used, she, how are you feeling? Don't ask. (laughs) <laughs> my mother struck a Horatian tone um, so I'm going to read the opening and um, some of you may recognize if, if you're geology fans or, or uh, biologists or anthropologists you may, rec- you may recognize this scene I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it is after I read it an eruption, the stone The shock wave jarred them from sleep and sent them stumbling to their feet. Next came the roar of exploding earth and a sky in flames. From that maelstrom in the heavens did a voice call out to them, go, hurry, the three of them, the man first, the woman following slightly behind, the child trailing off to one side, hurried away across the steaming plain, making their first marks footprints in the yielding layer of ash. Light shifted behind the veil of smoking sky. The rumbling went on and on. The man shouted at the gathering mist, coughed as he breathed. The girl slowed up, listed toward the plain, reached down and plucked at the ash. They walked, they walked. Light turned over, revealing a blue sky streaked with a long tail of smoke and ash. The girl pulled away from her mother, clutching something in her hand. This stone 
relatively cool to the touch, born of an earlier eruption. This small, egg-shaped stone, black, bluish, purple, mahogany, cocoa, dark fire within, three horizontal lines, one vertical, the same pattern carved into your high cheeks. Take it and hold it to your lips. Taste earth and sky. Taste the inside of a mouth, the lining of a birth canal, the faintest fleck of something darker even than the blackness through which it has passed. You have now kissed wherever this stone has been, and it has already traveled far. She said this to her child, as her mother had said to her and her mother's mother before that, and mothers and mothers and mothers, a line stretching back to the first darkness and first light from where the stone had spurted up from the heart of the rift in fire and smoke and steam, blurring the line where light of earth met light of sun, though at night the line showed starkly again. Who first carved those lines in its face, three horizontal, one vertical, three horizontal, the trek across the land, the one vertical, the ascent into the heavens? What hand and eye had kept them straight in both directions, across and up and down? What hands had passed it along from time through time until it lay in the palm of a man sprawled on his back on the desert floor between the town and the river? So that's the opening. Did, did anybody recognize that photograph? Do you know? Yeah, it's a. It's from one of the uh, leaky digs, and, it, and it's the oldest footprint, uh, thirty-five thousand-year-old trio of footprints, a family, father, mother, and child, fleeing from this erupting volcano. Um, and I, I wanted to use the, this is where uh, art comes up against uh, commerce, I wanted to use the, that, a, a drawing of those footprints, uh, and, um, and, and they just couldn't, the publisher just couldn't get it right, and they didn't do more than three or four tries, and then they, but then they decided they would do the, uh, the stone, so. I, I they do a good job with, of the stone. I was happy actually. with the stone, but yeah. they could, I, would, I wanted the footprints to lead all the way through the book. Um, but I didn't get that. Um, so that, that's the opening of the book, and it's a two-stranded narrative. Um, the, the formal um, opening is the African narrative in which a, a family of Muslim slaves, artisans, are... Um, make a run from Timbuktu in, in Mali in the 16th century because uh, the uh, accountant to the, the sultan who owns them has tipped them off that he's going to trade them to another, uh, to a friend of his in order to pay a debt. So they flee into the um, semi-arid uh, land around Timbuktu and then into the desert and uh, so we follow their story through various generations um, and through various permutations of the family group, uh, and uh, they make the the uh, the middle passage. They're, s they're sold from Arabs to African uh, pantheist slaveholders to uh, animus slaveholders to. Uh, uh, Christian slaveholders and 
make the Middle Passage, come to Charleston, which was a, one of the great slave trading ports in, uh, in, in the Western world. And um, they, uh, they're sold to a family of uh, Jewish slaveholders, um, a family of um, Sephardic Jews who came up from Curaçao, um, two brothers of three. One went to New York and opened an import-export uh, house, and another stayed in Charleston and uh, created a rice plantation. And the, the, the descendants of those figures whom I just uh, read about at the beginning become part of the slave population of this rice plantation run by uh, this uh, Jewish family. Uh, Alan, you know, one of the things that interests me uh, is, and I talked a little bit about this in the piece for the Metro, was that I think that we often think of, you know, the writer's tools. It's the typewriter, it's language, it's imagination. But I think in your case, and in a lot of writers' cases, the, the original tool, the thing that ticks things into motion is curiosity. Yeah, I, I, I was surprised when you said that because I've never thought of that. I mean, uh, I, always, I always think um, we approach things, as in writers, from, uh, from the point of where, where a deep sense of language meets uh, a chaotic uh, gallery of experience. So I've never thought of curiosity as driving. Um, but didn't, uh, wasn't the curiosity about Jewish slaveholders what kind That's of true. drove the yeah, yeah, inception yeah, of yes, this? So tell that yes. story, because that is yeah. an interesting story. Yeah, I, w I was in a, a fraternity, I was at Lafayette College uh, for a year, and um, I went to Lafayette. This is a, this, here's my bona fides to show you what good sense I have, so you'll take everything I say for the rest of the evening, knowing it's dispensed with this great kind of wisdom and experience. I went to Lafayette <laughs> College. Yeah, here it comes. I went to Lafayette College because the boyfriend of a girl I was madly in love with from about sixth grade through high school went to Lafayette. And I thought, of course, the logic is plain. If I go to Lafayette, I can win her away from this guy. Right? So I went to Lafayette for a year, uh, eight months, nine months, actually. And I pledged a Jewish fraternity there. Um, what did I know? I was just... I wasn't even reading my lines. You know, I was drugged by life. This is what you do. You go to college and you pledge a fraternity. At 17. At 17, yeah. And uh, the president of this fraternity was a, a black guy named Lenny Jeffries. Len Jeffries. Very, very smart, very handsome, very intelligent, very uh, handy, very socially adept. He was the only black guy in the fraternity, and I believe he was the only Christian in the fraternity. And, and so naturally, as those things go, he got elected president of the fraternity. Um, it's pr another novel, which I will not write, can go into what lurked in Len Jeffrey's mind over the years from that point on. But um, after I left Lafayette, you know, disappeared from my ken. And in the early 90s, he became head of black studies at City College of New York, 
very prestigious university and a very big job. And at a time when um, ethnic studies of any variety were, you know, were going up against um, great, great opposition from the, uh, you know, the, the white patriarchy of academia, who, who um, if they could have their way, and I'm not dissing Johnson and Milton, believe me when I said this, but if they would have their way, that was all one would study. So he uh, was chosen as head of cultural studies and tried to build a program. And his way of building a program was to say, I guess, what was on his mind, which was uh, black study was good because black people were sun people, as in a light with the heat and the fire of the life-giving force. And white people were ice people. you know what that means. So, um, and a lot of his colleagues outside the Black Studies Department got pissed off, <laughs> and and then he then he said, the the um, this is where my curiosity got piqued. He said, talking about Jews, he said, and of course, and you can read all about this, and if you go in onto the archives of New York Times and other New York newspapers, and he said. The Jews bankrolled the transatlantic slave trade. And I thought, that's really interesting because most of the Jews I knew, you know, out of, say, let's say, I knew 100 Jewish families growing up, and that's a lot. Three of them had cars that cost more than 50 cents. I thought, and these, and they're descended from people who bankrolled the transatlantic slave trade. Ships cost a lot to build, and you've got to hire a lot of uh, crews. Anyway, so I thought, is this the same Len Jeffries who was president of um, the fraternity? Is Zeta Beta Tau fraternity? No, it's the Jewish fraternity. Be- has the last letter of the alphabet that it begins with. Or they'd given out all the good letters at Lafayette, and the Jews got the Z. Uh, so I said, is this the same man? I said, this is really curious. But I wasn't, it's in, I wasn't so much interested in Len himself. And I say, that's somebody else's novel. Um, what really interested me was how true, how could he make that statement? Did he make it up out of thin air? Did he have any historical sources? So I started doing some research. And uh, over the course of about, I read on and off over the course of about 10, 12 years. And I discovered there were, three or four serious historical studies of Jews in relation to the slave trade and slavery. And uh, turns out there were, uh, in Charleston, in the, the uh, around 1820, 1850, about four Jewish families who held slaves and, and owned plantations using these slaves. Most, uh, and I also I discovered what I hadn't, I'd never known about Charleston. It was a very lively center of uh, Jewish intellectual life. And uh, it was a huge, and around this, between 1825 and 1835 or 40, there was a huge schism in the, in the uh, Jewish community, kind of like uh, the, the kind of thing that um, my dear late friend Jim Houston used to talk about in relation to his little, the little sect he grew up in. Um, 
the Church of Christ in, in, in the Texas Panhandle. That, that was Jim's uh, early uh, religious community. And he talked about how Ken Starr's family was there along with his grandparents. And he, uh, he once explained the, uh, the uh, Clinton uh, impeachment proceedings to me in, in terms of Starr's religious background. Because Jim explained to me that in the in Church of Christ, Jews were anathema. Catholics were, you know, this dirty little cult. Protestants, you know, were bloodless who knew nothing about Jesus. But the real enemy, the real enemy were the Southern Baptists. <laughs> and so um, Jim, I mean, it was very clear. He said that whole impeachment thing, Ken Starr against Bill Clinton, it was, he was hunting down a Southern Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> so this, so there, there was this schism in in the Jewish community in Charleston. Um, it, Highlander playing out in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the 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 congregation was quite liberal, but they spawned a, a couple of children in that generation that was born around 1800, who were arch conservative Jews, and they did not want to have a piano or a harp in the congregation. I mean, to go back to Jim Houston's story, you know, he, he said, Ken Starr's grandparents went to the pastor who had brought a piano into their church and said, you show us the word piano in the Bible and we'll stay. <laughs> so, th so these uh, conservative Jews, or Orthodox Jews, I should say, uh, basically gave the rabbi the same ultimatum, and when he didn't budge, they, they split and formed their own uh, congregation. It, it was fathers, sons against fathers. It was very interesting. Uh, there was a, a well-known... Um, who, who were the liberals, I mean, were, who were accepted? The sons or your fathers? The, the, the sons were the, were the radical, conservative, arch conservative Jews, oh, yeah. And um, one of them was a wonderful artist, um, Simon Pereira, I believe his name was. And, I, and he, uh, he was a daguerreotypist and a wonderful artist. He made a mural in the synagogue about Moses uh, crossing the Red Sea. And, um, and then he became um, much more conservative and uh, split from the congregation. About 10 years after that, he became uh, the, the artist of record at, at, one, at one of the three or four major expeditions um, of, the, uh, of explorers going from trying to find a pass in the Rockies to, uh, to California. And ended up, he kept kosher until he was starving to death and had to eat a bear. So even the, I mean, the, you're, if you have, have ever had a, an Orthodox rabbi, he would say, don't eat bear, but if you have to eat bear, <laughs> you can eat bear. Um, this was among the facts we were not expecting to hear. This anyway, <laughs> no, well, I just, I, right. <laughs> bear meat is not kosher. <laughs> but well, if, what if but anyway, this is one of the little side, uh, you know, by blows of my research. Um, but, but basically what I learned was, 
you know, 99.6% of the Jews in Charleston were, were in the professions or in the trades and lived in Charleston. And these four families uh, kept this rice plantation and lived outside of Charleston. And uh, so Len, coming back to Len Jeffries, this infinitesimal number of Jews were involved in the slave trade. Nonetheless, uh, I found that astonishingly interesting that that anyone, well, that anyone could own other people, would want to own other people, uh, let alone the people of the book who had themselves been enslaved and whose history was a march from slavery to freedom. So I became interested in this. And, and the more I read about these plantation owners, these particular plantation owners, and the more I, I read histories of, of Jewish families around this period in Charleston, in the slave trade, uh, I began as uh, as one does. I began to imagine these characters, and I began to imagine scenes. Uh, at this level, you all understand how you do this. Uh, there's no, there's a, an elementary distinction, but at the same time, quite a similarity between hypochondria and the creative imagination. <laughs> So, right, that pimple you think might be melanoma. Uh, I mean, the same kind of wild imaginary, what, what the Buddhists call monkey mind, that takes over is what happens when you, when you read and find a character interesting or, or uh, see something or overhear a conversation and, and you begin to develop a story that, uh, that grows from it. So... Even the worst of us, uh, you know, in our hypochondria, are basically using our creative imaginations. Well, you know, <laughs> to bad ends rather than good. <laughs> to speaking of creative imaginations, Alan, as I read this book, I think it's your most uh, visionary prose, and there's a lot of visionary prose in this. And even though it's clearly a historical novel based in fact, I think this book really shows for, showed for me this the great similarity between the historical fiction genre and the fantasy genre hmm. uh, in that you go to a great deal of trouble and quite successfully build worlds for us in which we've never lived, you've never lived, nobody alive has ever lived in at this point, and you create them out of pretty much whole cloth. There's, there's lots of, uh, obviously there's lots of historical background in here, but still when it comes down to the language, you're just out there taking a flyer and, you know, this... For many people, we're taking dictation. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, for many people, the, the world of Middle Earth or uh, Harry Potter is probably more real than the world you're writing about. And so you have, as a novelist, you have a, a job to create this real world in the same way. And you bring in a lot of elements of the fantastic. There are gods, ghosts, witches, haints. It's mm -hmm. it's a novel that really reminded me a lot of, in many ways, of an epic fantasy, which is probably not the review that you got from the New York Times. <laughs> New York Times didn't review it. Oh, they didn't? No. What is the matter with So that? feeding my conspiracy. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs>
So I mean, now, now, I, now I sound like Len Jeffries. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, talk about uh, just this process of uh, creating a world. When you sit down to write this, do you just start at word one and end at word, uh, I guess, what, 200,000? I started, the, the, I didn't talk, the second strand of narrative in this novel is the story of uh, the son of the Sephardic brothers who goes to New York and opens the import-export business. Um, and I started by uh, working with him. Um, and he, here's a... Now, let me ask you, did you have a lot of, did you have a, a lot of plot in your mind or written down? Or did you just have a bunch of research notes? Um, did you have both strands kind of plotted out? Did you have like a, a, a spreadsheet? Or was this all just in... Like notebooks and notebooks. Notebooks, okay. Notebooks, yeah. Here's the second chapter. The first chapter opens with that family about to flee Timbuktu. Here's the second chapter. Some time ago, before our nation split in two and the opposing territories, north and south, initiated a great war over the question of freedom, yours truly, Nathaniel Pereira, climbed the plank on a Manhattan winter morning to board a southbound yawl called the Godbolt. My father had charged me with a mission of some family business of the import-export variety. Earnest young man that I was, sandy-haired, blue-eyed, with a handsomely bent nose, which Marzi, our family serv servant, often joked with me about when I was a child, and just the beginnings of a beard on my pink cheeks, I could then imagine little, I, I could then little imagine how much such a journey would change my life and the lives of others in the family. And so he set sail for Charleston and to uh, investigate on his father's behalf, whether or not the family should invest in the plantation. Now, his uncle, who, who owns the plantation, is desperate to get uh, his brother in New York to invest because, uh, for a number of reasons, if you, if you read, say, Eugene Genovese's uh, book on slavery, you discover that uh, one of the major activities of, of slaves was sabotage. And so you can't, you, you have all these people working for nothing to make your plantation work, but they are also work, they're working for you because they, you own them, but they also are working against you by doing whatever they can to keep things from going along well. Uh, and so the uncle is desperate for his brother's investment money to help uh, keep the place uh, profitable. Um, the, the other irony about the rice plantation, I learned, um, in case you're thinking that I was always an expert on the no, I love ri this. rice horticulture. There's uh, a lot of interesting technology in this. It's high-tech rice tech. Yeah, so I read a lot about, I read a lot about uh, ho rice horticulture. And what, and what it turns out that the plantation owners, all, or Charleston was one of the great uh, rice bowls um, in the Western world. And it worked because the Africans they imported, many of the Africans they imported and enslaved, had come out of rice-growing economies in, in uh, Africa. And so the, they had built-in expertise, which uh, the slave owners had none, of which the slave owners had none. So, I mean, if you think about these rice 
bowls, these centers of rice, uh, rice growing, were feeding Napoleon's armies, I mean, among other things, and, and the American armies. So in, in much the same way that we know how that imported Chinese near slave labor built the railroads in the West, what, what I didn't know, maybe you don't know either, maybe some of you do know, that these slaves who worked on these rice plantations were feeding the grand armies of the Western world. Um, a hidden bond connects us all, <laughs> I guess you have to say. So Nathaniel Pereira comes to, to the plantation owned by his uncle outside of Charleston and puts on his investigator's cap. He knows he's, he's been tutored uh, and he really wants to go to Europe for his grand tour but his father said, no, you can't do that until you go down to Charleston and do this work for me. So he, he can't wait to leave as soon as he arrives. But he um, falls madly in love with one of the slave women, young slave women, who is the youngest uh, descendant of that family that started out uh, in Africa. Uh, generations ago, eons ago. Now talk about uh, creating that kind of, the way you weave this together over the story I think is really wonderful. And it makes for a really uh, kind of a page turning and involving experience because you get us really involved in her family's saga. And it, there's uh, the, the other question too is there's the, the question of voice. Mm -hmm. uh, Nathaniel is, very, is a really interesting character. He's kind of full of himself. Really, you know, he yeah. kind of highfalutin, and, yeah. but yet unexperienced at the same time, which we know. And then there's the other voice that tells this other story, and that's kind of a mystery because it's it's a voice. It's not a dispassionate third-person narrator. Right. It's really a voice. Yes. So, uh, and that's you do a great job uh, working the mystery of just who we're hearing. Of. You have to read to the end, almost to the end, to find out. Yeah. <laughs> who that is. Um, that, that I, I, I did you know you were going to do that right from the get-go, or did you kind oh, of course. develop that? Of course, <laughs> <laughs> I wrote this from the first word to the end without any revision. <laughs> All right, and I can sell you a bridge in Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, you know, revision is everything. Revision is everything. I'll tell you a um, funny story out of my one of my marriages. My I was teaching at Bennington College in southwestern Vermont. <clears throat> and I read a novel that I really loved and reviewed it for the nation. It's called The Sunlight Dialogues by John Gardner. If you haven't, and if you haven't read it, I recommend it to you highly. And so uh, with another friend of mine who was teaching there at the time, we got the college to fork up some cash and invite Gar Gardner to give a reading. And then what we didn't know, as he explained later, uh, he uh, well, he stayed for days and did wonderful things with the students and was spectacularly uh, uh, generous with his time and and uh, I'll I'll save all of the gory stories for some book I'll write sometime a, a memoir I've already written a memoir I wrote a memoir before memoir was cool but maybe I'll write another one sometime after I've had enough experience but anyway I have to um, make sure that it's mostly fictional yeah. So, Gar so we got Gardner a job at Bennington, 
this is my friend and I, and um, he came. And years later, he said, um, he took this job. Which, I mean, we, he sent his Vida. It was like getting Chekhov's CV. And we, were, we couldn't wait. My friend Nick Delvaco and I, we ran to the president's office. The president was the only female college president at the time. Her name was Gail Parker. Her husband was the vice president. And uh, she had come fresh out of the Harvard uh, uh, History and Lit program. Her first job was president of Bennington College. It happened because the trustees wanted a woman, and they liked her. She was very smart. Um, and it was a kind of two-for-one thing where her husband was going to be the vice president and essentially the business manager. And he was a pretty good business manager. Screwed me out of uh, retirement money before I knew it, before I knew it. Anyway, that's another story. But so we go, Del Banco and I go running to the president's office, and we say, with a, you know, Gardner's CV in our hands, shaking. This man wants to come and teach here. And she, sa and she said, well, I haven't read his work, but if you say he's good, then we'll hire him. She said, in fact, and any of you have any, have ever spent any time in academia, you can imagine what this meant to a bunch of other people. She said, well, you know, the trustees have just raised X number of hundreds of thousands for a new, a new chair. It's a revolving chair. And I've just awarded it to the science department. But since you say this man Gardner is so good, I'm going to take it back from the science department and give it to him. <laughs> uh, so, and from that point on, she was a dead president walking. And I mean, it took the faculty a, a year and a half to get, get her out of there. It didn't help that, and, you, and if you're interested in this, and I know this is far afield but from, from this. That's why we're here. But <laughs> this is why we're here. You can read, friend. if you're Nora Ephron, the young Nora Ephron, before he ha she had what she calls her neck, <laughs> came, she, was, she did a piece on Bennington for Esquire yeah, because she had found out through, there, there was a, a, a brilliant, demonic scholar teaching there at the time, a woman named Camille Paglia. Uh, yeah, um, um, she was not evil incarnate, but close. There was a, another person on the faculty who really deserved that title. Now dead of a brain tumor, but anyway, pa Paglia is still gone. She despised me, and it wasn't until her second book came out that she wrote me a letter. Fifteen years later, she wrote me a letter, it, uh, and it said, over the years I've come to greatly admire your work, Alan. And by the way, I have a new book coming out, and the publisher is saying, so even evil grovels before, before a reviewer. Anyway, so I didn't write a review. I, but I did show the letter to a number of people, and it's in my papers at the University of Virginia. So. Um, Someday, it will come to light. Anyway, um, Gardner arrives, and this is a long, long way around to this dinner party, which my and we'll be broadcasting this back to the Bennington College PA system. It's okay; <laughs> what, they they'd love it. They're so narcissistic there. My so my wife at the time makes this meal. She made a wonderful uh, Mexican dinner, and. Uh, 
invites a bunch of our writer friends and some people came up from, from the city. And, and John, uh, he, he doesn't bring Joan, his wife, with him because she's in Detroit uh, with her lover, Gene Rudswitz, who was a student of John's at Wayne State. And he, he did this number. He'd find a, a good student. He'd say, you're good, but I can make you great. Just study with me. We'll write. We'll, we'll see each other. And uh, Joan fell in love with this guy. And so she was visiting him in Detroit on the pretext of seeing her shrink. And uh, so John brought their two kids, little at the time, and plunked them down on the floor. And uh, my wife fed them. And, and so there was some of these writers you may know. Edward Hoagland, Ted Hoagland, a guy named Richard Elman, and uh, Nick Delbanco, uh, and Bernard Malamud, among others. And John, he was, he was a, an alcoholic, crazed with liquor, but also with his brilliance, that, I mean, just on fire with his brilliant mind of his, went to each writer in the room. He said, Ted Hoagland, what a wonderful writer you are. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't know you were there. What a wonderful writer you are. But you know that scene in that circus novel where you did this and this? If you only did it this way, you could have been so much better. And he, so he, he gave a writing lesson to about f four or five of the writers in the room. And I was watching Malamud, who was watching him. Byrne was on the faculty at the time. And he watched with fascination and rising horror. He had a second beer, which is unheard of for Malamud, to sat there watching this as Gardner got closer and closer to him. We need the Jaws theme. <laughs> and at that moment, he turns to Malamud and sinks down onto the floor and looks up at him and says, and now, Master, you teach me. So anyway, the end of the evening, end of the evening, John's the last person to leave with his, he's got a, a small child slung over each shoulder. And my wife, at the time, says, he says, thank you, Marjorie, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful meal. It was a great evening. I loved it. I want to come back. Make me more dinners. She said, you are one of the best writers in America. I love your work, and you're the worst son of a bitch I've ever fed a meal to. <laughs> now get out of my house. Because he was so rude to all these other right? He puts the children down on the mat in front of him and takes her in his arms, which was talk about sun and ice, um, and says, Marjorie, Marjorie, you don't understand. I can revise my work, but I can't revise my life. <laughs> it's a long explanation of the importance of revision and how, <laughs> how lucky we, how, how, so you have, um, you know, have these, you have these characters, you have these chapters, you have these, th this plot that you're trying to, Invent and create, or whatever word you want to use, make up, steal, dream. And you go back and you write it over and over and over and over again. And with a novel this long, I, I mean, I'm not feeling sorry for myself. Any writer would tell you this. I mean, it is an enormous uh, back-breaking labor. Gardner went, showed me the manuscript of his novel, Mickelson's Ghost. It was in the house where he was living with um, his um, second wife, Liz Rosenberg, who had been a student of both of ours at Bennington. And 
he came to Bennington, he confessed around this time, three or four years after he had first arrived. He said, oh, I came here so I could get rid of Joan. So you see, he, you know, he was in many ways a monstrous person. Joan, his wife, whom he had slept with when they were both one and a half years old and they were put, because they were cousins. They were second cousins. And, and their parents put them together in a dresser, a large dresser drawer <laughs> in, this, in the family house in St. Louis. That's the first time they slept together. But. So he encouraged her affair with Jean and when he met Liz Rosenberg, uh, whom we affectionately referred to as, you know, as Starfucker. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, there goes the NPR they, broadcast. <laughs> they, whom he affectionately referred to, we, whom we affectionately, this is what we do in the studio, right? Whom we, he, whom he affectionately referred to, wrong, this is what happens, whom we, his friends, affectionately referred to with a term that we can't use on public radio. <laughs> um, so they, he, he, they, they ran off together, leaving Joan behind with the children. Um, so he, he was not good to his family in that regard, but all he wanted to do was write. So you have to, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you, if you want to moralize, you can say Picasso was a rotten son of a bitch, but he was also one of the greatest artists of all time. Ezra Pound was a filthy anti-Semite, but he was one of the great geniuses of modern poetic, poetic theory. Um, this is, I mean, we have to live with these things. You know. S so anyway, uh, you know, you, we can revise our work. And if we begin to treat it as we treat ourselves in life, we're, we're not going to revise it well. We have to treat it as something both part of life and apart from life at the same time. Well, how long did it take you to uh, birth this thing? Counselor, I have no recollection. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess 10 years you ago. I started the research about 20 years, and then, and then I, I wrote part of it, and I wrote, uh, number, I wrote a number of chapters about eight years ago and then put them all aside, and then... Uh, to write a couple of other books. And then when I finished this novel about Edward Curtis, uh, To Catch the Lightning, which came out uh, a couple of years ago, then I s sat down and wrote this sort of flat out the rest of the way. Um, so on and off 20 some years, but not uh, all of those years all the time, until the last, say, two and a half years when it, this was everything that I was doing, aside from yeah, living reviews and teaching uh, masters, MFA students. You know, uh, this book is filled with uh, all sorts of very interesting allusions and riffs on freedom and uh, freedom of will, freedom of choice, what freedom is. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you, have, you can dial this, and you do in this book, dial it all the way back to, you know, the, the concept of how can we have free will if God's preordained everything for us, and then you take it all the way out to slaves who may realize not, who may feel free until they try to leave, and then they realize they're not free. Uh, according to uh, 
neuroscientist uh, David Eagleman, uh, he's been studying the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, the, the consensus right now is that we do not have free will. And this gets back to one of my favorite Kurt Vonnegut novels, uh, Breakfast of Champions, where he characterized us as essentially uh, walking chemical reactions. Well, <laughs> Rick, I am not sure about that. <laughs> I know I didn't have free will in my first two marriages. <laughs> That I can say. I would you know, give a sworn testimony to that. But eventually you try to break free, but you, you, know, you, you don't want to swerve too far to the other side. Well, you talk about developing the, you know, the theme of freedom. And here, here's tons of fun. Here's I mean. a scene. Um, here's a scene. It's very brief. Um, it's a scene, there's a, a, a thread of narrative that runs through called uh, Voices in My Ear. And this one is called The Goddess Intervenes in a Kingdom by the Sea. Oh, this is one of the uh, bits of uh, fantasy. You call it fantasy? Uh, yeah. It's, uh, really? You, you can put that right in a, in a high-quality literary fantasy novel by, say, Guy Gar Gabriel Kay or something like this. Well, let the audience be the judge. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> the, the, you should know that... Uh, Jonathan Pereira, Nathaniel Pereira's cousin, runs the plantation for his father. The, the goddess intervenes in a kingdom by the sea. No place was Eden except Eden, but for the Pereiras whose ancestors stretched in a long line of alert and capable people from the time of the Roman conquest of the Holy Land through their exile in Rome itself and then generations later Holland, the island of Curaçao came close enough. A great grandfather of Jonathan Pereira had in place of some money he was owed in a business deal that had gone wrong in Amsterdam, taken the title to a seaside farm on this remote and lovely island. Storms sometimes battered it in late summer and early autumn, yes, but for most of the year, the Pereira heirs, three brothers whose own parents had emigrated from Holland to the New World, felt as though they were living in the place from which their earliest family, or so the Bible would have it, had been expelled. Alas for all, the farm had come with a cadre of enslaved Africans, some of whom worked the land and others who served inside the house. Uh, and I don't want to get too far in before I tell you this a little bit, my present, and I believe and hope and pray, last wife, had a husband who, after they divorced, uh, among uh, other things, moved, well, he moved to South Africa. And there he bought a farm which came with a, a slave in contemporary South Africa, came with a sex slave. So this goes on. This goes on. And in case you wonder whether he got his come, comeuppance, he uh, ran out of money. And to, in order to save the farm, he smuggled heroin into uh, England and was arrested at the airport and spent uh, eight years of a 15-year sentence in prison in England. He was released for good time because he learned yoga and was teaching yoga in the prison. <laughs> and um, so he returned to the U.S. and 
No, he continued to drink, <laughs> and it's a very sad ending. He he um, stepped on a nail. His foot became infected. He, he was too drunk to go to the hospital, and he d died of sepsis at the age of 54. Alas, for all, the farm had come with a cadre of enslaved Africans, some of whom worked the land and others who served inside the house. For 10,000 years, men had taken other men as slaves, either in battle, which was certainly not the case for the peaceful Pereiras, or as payment and property. Not even these Jews, whose ancestors themselves had once lived in bondage in Egypt, could resist the temptation and opportunity that slavery offered. This led to some odd and strange situations, both on earth and in heaven, as on a certain morning in hurricane season, when the then very young Jonathan Pereira was visiting the family of the uncle who had stayed behind to work the farm after his two siblings had shipped out north, one to Charleston and the other to New York City. So Jonathan had come down from the Charleston plantation. He must have been seven or eight. Well, who knows if he himself could not remember exactly. Some young age, possibly some nine years old, but not much older, when he left his Curacao uncle's seaside house and walked across the well-kept lawn. The slaves did a fine job of keeping it green and without weeds, and down through rows of seagrass to the beach. Let it be said, Jonathan was not a stupid child. Being able to lord it over the piccaninny offspring of the slaves had encouraged the mean streak in his character that most children, boys and girls alike, discover sometimes to their sorrow, always to their amazement. Being a child himself, power over other children deluded him into thinking that he was a powerful boy. This allowed him to believe that he found himself in no danger as he waded out into, into the lapping surf, waded out farther than ever before, feeling the strong waves wash over him and the tug of the undertow racing past the backs of his knees. The horizon growled black with storm clouds and thunder, and before he knew it, a wave knocked him flat on his back, the undertow lifting him from below and behind and carrying him out far beyond his usual limit. A minute or two passed before he felt the fear surging through him, even as the waves hoisted him up and lowered him, hoisted him up and lowered and lowered, and suddenly he went under, flailing about, desperate for air. Think, it was not just his life at stake as surf surged past his shoulders, as if to delight rather than to signal the imminent death by water that awaited him. And as he was sinking through the phantasmagorical aquamarine surrounding seaweed torn around him, sand in upheaval, shells and starfish sailing past, even as the current, oddly warm but ferocious in its grip, boiled around his body and carried him along to where he did not know, all of our fates hung in the balance because so much was about to change for us or never to come to light at all. A sudden stillness, and the boy watched the last bubbles of air float from his mouth toward the surface. One bubble in particular caught his eye, and he tagged it with his glance as it rose higher and higher until it melded with the mass of other bubbles above his head. Goodbye, he should have said to us if he knew any better. Goodbye, and sorry that I'm dying and that you will never live. Liza, me, the others to become. Stupid child, he had no sense of what ruled him now, the large, dark hand of death squeezing his lungs and heart. He loved facing into the storm and walking forward. See where it took him? Down he went so that his feet touched the sandy floor of ocean where he would, it seemed, come to his final early rest. Oh, he floated to his knees, his hair floating up in waves like sea plant and weed. Was he gone? Yes, poor fellow, even he deserves our pity, for was he not only then a child, dying? Now, as much as men would like to believe that the gods to whom they pray, 
remain mutually exclusive. That is, the God of the Jews is different from the God of the Christians and the God of the Muslims, to name the major ways of religious thinking in the West, all different. That remains not to be the case. Or so we might surmise, given the story of what took place in the distance, behind the bubble-borne veil of that undertow, above the storm, in the pure sunlight that always reigned when you cast yourself off a certain distance from the planet, or so ancient astronomers and some modern storytellers would propose, there roared a force as great as the impending storm below. Yahweh, whose followers took him to be the force behind all the greatest forces in the universe, found himself in a quarrel with what he took to be a lesser god or goddess, this certain Yamaya, whose followers regarded her as the force behind many natural wonders on earth, especially oceans and rivers and streams, and even perhaps in the heavens, but made no claims as great as the Jews who worshipped Yahweh. Yahweh, whose voice, when he employed it, seemed to come from everywhere and nowhere, spoke his annoyance, sounding something like Zeus, one of his older cousin gods, worshipped by the smart and poetical pagans. You're worried that he may drown? May? It seems quite certain to me. Then rescue him. I should rescue him? Can you give me a good reason? He's a nasty boy, bound to grow into a nastier man, and the world already has enough of these. Yamaya, loud in speech, but also looking quite lovely in her mermaid form. Mermaid swimming in near space? I can't figure that, but that's how the story has it. She challenged Yahweh the way a wife might challenge a husband, with the full force and knowledge of someone who knows her opponent's greatest powers, but also his greatest weaknesses. But so much depends on him. He chose to walk into the waves. He miscalculated. He thinks he is invincible. This will show him. Death will show him. Some human, being, human beings have to learn the hard way. And if he learns this, what good will it do him? What good will it do the world? The world needs him for what reason? Tell me a reason and I will save him. Though let us admit it, you have the power to do that yourself, do you not? Which makes me believe that you want me to join in only out of a certain goddess-like perversity. I want you to save him because he's one of yours. In the narrowest way he is, yes, he has the sign upon his genitals that he belongs to me, and now and then he mutters a prayer when sitting with his congregation. Do you want one less of him in the world? Why would you want even one more of him? Because you, Yamaya, are too coy to be in the heavens. Come out and say it. Because you know I see it, I see everything. You want him because without him, yes, without him, without him no one will be born to tell this story. Exactly. Unheard cataclysms unechoed through the cosmos. Stars lived and died. Showers of some light that no one would ever, ever in the history of human science be able to explain came pouring up and down and sidewise among the galaxies. And your precious girl, not even born yet, and when she's conceived, conceived in awful torque and wretched forcefulness, you want her to be free? Yes. But you want me to take away this boy's freedom to die? Yes. You want me to save one of my nasty own when you should be rejoicing that he won't live to do his damnest in the world against your followers? Yes. Do you think I'm bound to do this? Not necessarily. Do you think I reserve the right to be free and take his life? Yes. Then I will allow you in person to save him, as if I have a choice. Yes, because you are bound to save him no matter what I wish, correct? But Yamaya, smiling, had already dived through space into the deep air of our planet, listening to Yahweh, because like any deity she could hear everything everywhere, but often deigned not to admit all the speech and all the cries of anguish and pain and all the noise and blunderbuss burstings and agony of torture and outpourings of misery into her outward realm of sound, but already on the way to do her deeding. Thus a black mermaid burst out from behind the sea foam and ocean rack curtain, taking the drowning boy by the elbows and hauling him onward and upward toward the surface. 
From what I have seen, the black mermaid, Yamaya, goddess of oceans and skies above oceans, declaimed in his ear, I should leave you here to drown. But so much depends on you growing into a man, however despicable a man you might be, that I had to come to your rescue. You will grow older and aid your family in Charleston and become an owner of men, women, and children as you learn the business of growing rice. And one day you will see a young woman, beautiful, brown, helpless, because she is your property, and you will use her as you would use a beast, though your vile actions will not make her one, neither will what you do to the daughter she gives you to keep, keep her from going on to make her fate. Oh, you men are so much slower than us gods. I have just told you all of your future that matters, and you're still imagining you're drowning. She hauled him to the beach and dropped him hacking and wheezing on the sand, and she left him spitting up salt water, ready to begin his life to come. Hmm? Fantasy? Oh, said no, not no, that's. Not <laughs> uh, I mean, I thought. I mean, that's kind of neat. This colloquy of goddess and god. Well, when the immigrants came to America, they brought their gods with them, and they yes. they literally came. Well, you want to read the book and find out. <laughs> without him, without him, no story. <laughs> No, no, no. There's, oh no, there's, there's quite a bit uh, that uh, Yamaya and Yahweh have uh, left for us to understand. You know, uh, Alan, this, one of the things that this passage you just read, <laughs> and especially in contrast to the Nathaniel passage, um, these are, the man who wrote these passages must have been in a very different mood. Did you have to like uh, whip yourself up into uh, poetry fantasia and uh, then uh, take yourself down to uh, a notch into um, this uh, grandiloquent uh, young man? Well, it's a nice way to put it. I just sit there typing. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is internal. I, I mean, that's the, I mean, you, you ever see these movies about writers? I mean, they're, they're so romantic and they're dashing and, you know, uh, I mean, basically it's very boring. You just sit and type. Well, I'm one, just wondering for you about your creative uh, process. Did you write all these, uh, the two different strands essentially separately, or did you weave them together as you were writing the novel, or did, like, you... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all of the above. Um, I wrote what I needed when I needed it. Mm. Let's put it that way. Um, do you want me to pull the curtain aside so you can see how the sausage is made? No. Well, let me ask you this. I bought the... Uh, Nathaniel Strand from a, a guy in New York. <laughs> <laughs> my, my friend, uh, Robert Pinsky, who's my, my ch boyhood friend, we went to college together, um, attended University of Chicago. He did graduate at the University of Chicago. And he, when he finished his dissertation on uh, Landor, the, the, the British poet, um, looked for a typist. And he, he looked in the newspaper, and there was an advertisement for academic typing. So he calls the guy up and arranges, gets a prize and brings it by. And then the guy calls him some um, days later and, or a week later and says, your dissertation's done. Come pick it up. And this, the guy who did the typing was kind of beer belly guy, beard and a t-shirt in this, you know, rather sparely decorated uh, kind of down and out apartment in, in Chicago. 
and as Pinsky writes him a check for the typing and, and the guy hands him the dissertation and he says, you know, I could have written this for you if you'd only asked me. <laughs> <laughs> my old, my dear old teacher, the, uh, uh, John Chardy, the poet at, at Rutgers, where fortunately I transferred um, after about one year at Lafayette, John worked his way through Harvard writing uh, papers and dissertations for other, for other students. Yeah, for the, uh, I mean, he was a, he was a down and out Italian kid uh, from the worst part of the Boston slums, and um, so he didn't have very much money. He had a scholarship, but that's how he earned his, his most of his money by uh, writing for all these high-born Harvard children. And there's a lot of songs and literature in this? Songs, a lot of the songs came uh, from research. Did you actually hear the music or did you just see the, the lyrics or? Both, sometimes one, sometimes the other, sometimes both. And, and I gotta say, you must have been in a very Edgar Allan Poe mood. There's a lot of- uh, It's very Poe-ish. Yeah, it's very Poe-ish and I, I kept uh, Do I look Poe-ish? Do I look Poe-ish? <laughs> a little bit, baby. Um, I kept bumping into the the. I don't uh, drink and take enough drugs to look <laughs> Polish. Yeah. Um, kept bumping into the Raven, and all I could think of was the scene in. Uh, there's a book by Mike Weiss called Double Play. He wrote it's a it's the story of the uh, the Moscone uh, killings, and uh, about Dan White. And one of the things he relates is how Diane Fein they used to have parties all the time, and Diane Feinstein one of her specialty at parties was to get up and recite The Raven. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> anytime I see, I see The Raven, all I can hear is... Yeah. Well, well, Nathaniel Pereira is a, is a fan of Poe. Here, here's one of the songs. This is right out of uh, uh, histories of, of the music of the time. My old missus promised me Shuala Day. When she dies, she set me free, Shuala Day. There's another one. Massa sleeps in the feather bed, nigger sleeps on the floor. When weans go to heaven, the be slave the be no slaves no more. Again, it's right out of the music of the poem. You also find a lot of freedom in this book. I mean, there's a great quote here. Uh, when I read a poem, I'm free. Somebody says that. And, and you find a lot of freedom in storytelling yeah. and in there's stories. A, there's a, talking about Harvard, there's a Harvard-educated doctor uh, from Charleston, who, who, whom the uh, owner of the plantation employs to keep the slaves healthy. And he, he teaches Liza, that the, the young woman whom Nathaniel falls in love with, he teaches her from an early age how to read and how to study. So she knows a lot more than she makes out that she knows. And, and the other thing I have to ask about, too, is all the medicine, the herbal remedies, you do a good job at describing them in an abstract manner, and we see them through the eyes of people who don't think much about them. <coughs> but I get the feeling you know all about them. Or did you just make them up? <laughs> Senator, again, I have no recollection. <laughs> no, no That's reason. the answer. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's a very herbal book. Yeah, yeah, well, it definitely is that. Well, talk a little bit about, um, you know, one of the things you do <coughs> here is give us a vision of slavery, and you do a good job of 
getting inside of it, giving us a, a different perception than we've seen before. And I was really struck by the scene where uh, Nathaniel sees a baby born in the fields and thinks he's already a slave. Was a slave, and uh, I'm not taking sides in the the abortion question, but you, you know the the anti-abortion people would, could, would say he was a slave at conception, but then you could say that you know this, any man seaman was slave. I mean these you know people owned other people. The one the, the, the most difficult section for me to write was the middle passage section though. That was really harrowing to read. Uh, toughest thing I've ever gone through and for a number of reasons, the horror of it, but also because uh, Charles Johnson had written an extraordinary novel called The Middle Passage and I knew First of all, I was writing about characters um, whose lives I've never led, uh, who are, as somebody said, I, when I was on the, on the, if you heard Forum on Tuesday, I was on Forum on Tuesday, and the Krasny show at KQED, and one of the callers uh, said, just, I could not do this, I wasn't supposed to do this, because uh, I wasn't black. Um, and I tried to explain that one w the way I came, the way I, I found a way into the Middle Passage because of all the reading I had done over the years about the concentration camps. And to me, there is a, a direct uh, connection between the two. Um, and he said, well, the caller said, well, no, no, that wasn't slavery, that was extermination. And fortunately, I knew enough about it to explain to him, no, in fact, it was about extermination and slavery because uh, not just the Jews but the, the various Eastern European nationals whom the Nazis enslaved were, worked in, in, in the war machine. They worked in the factories and worked, they were worked to death um, in the mines and in the, and in the munitions plants, building tanks and uh, growing food. But so at a more basic level, it's it, there, it's both complete dehumanization. I mean, that's the, the, the more basic connection. That working, not working, it's a, a disregarding the actual humanity of somebody who's actually human, yeah. to just say yeah. by executive fiat, yeah. I don't like these people, I ain't human. And I, I think most of us in our lives have regarded some people that way maybe for an instant or maybe for a year. Uh, I mean, it's, it's easy to do when you don't know someone to think that they are not as human as you. Um, but that was the connection between me and, 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 and that horror show that I honestly think reading, I mean, I'm no expert in the history of slavery, but as much as I've read of it, I think somehow there's a slight tinge of romanticism that, that carries along with it. We don't want to think it was as bad as it was, uh, maybe because in a, in a way we married our way, our ancestors married their way out of slavery in certain venues. Uh, but it would, for any individual slave uh, under the wrong master, and most of the masters were the, were the wrong people, 
Uh, now and then you find some kind of enlightened despot of a master uh, who would work the slaves until he died and then leave his will in which he freed them. You know, I always find very curious that if you're going to free someone, why not free them but when the thought comes to you? You're right. Be, yes. Right. So it, it, it seems to me that we can all know the experience of the other as much as we can know the experience of the other if we work hard enough at it and use our imaginations as well as uh, our experience and use our studies as, as much as our imaginations. Because if you don't accept that, then what's left? Only teenagers can write about teenagers, except writers who have been teenagers may be able to write about teenagers of the same gender that they were. But nobody under the age of 70 can write about anyone above the age of 70. And people from the industrial northeast corner of Jersey can only write about people from the industrial northeast corner of Jersey. I said this to my friend Richard Ford when he set uh, part of his Independence Day series uh, in, on the Jersey Shore. I said, look, Richard, one time you can have this subject as your subject, but after that, you know, you got to come and ask. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, 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 we have our knowledge and we have our imaginations as well as our own lives. If we, why do we read? We read to learn about other people, other spaces, other climes. Exactly. The reading experience is all about and getting it, out it, of your it, own mind and into some other completely different set of perceptions. That's what reading does for you. So what, so can, I mean, obviously I, I, it can work the other way. I don't know. I don't remember the reviews of uh, James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room or Another Country at the time. I just devoured those books. Could someone have said to Baldwin, well, no, you can't write about a white homosexual. You're a black homosexual. You can't write about white musicians. You can only write about black musicians. Um, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, our country is moving, and I'm moving at almost a jet-propelled speed towards a, a uh, melange of ethnicity uh, that probably someday will rival Brazil's and go beyond, far beyond Brazil's. Uh, and yet there are bean counters who are saying, uh-uh-uh. You can't, you're white, you can't write black. You're black, you can't write white. Um, I mean, I've tried to write about women um, for the, over the decades and decades. I've done a lot of research. <laughs> it's been very costly. <laughs> I mean, if this rule, you know, I'm, if, if the thought police said, I'm sorry, Monsieur Flaubert, no, 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 Madame Bovary, I'm sorry. Um, sorry, George Eliot, even though you have a male name, you can't write about Mr. Kazavon in Middlemarch. Sorry, sorry. There's a, a lovely Chekhovian moment in this book where Nathaniel gets a gun. And it's all—it's so wonderful to read that and, and know that that gun's going to—it's going to come down off the wall. Yes. And, and I, I well, think when, he, when, he's, when Nathaniel first 
leaves New York. I mean, he's getting ready to catch the, sh the boat. His father gives him a, 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 a pocket watch and a gun. Now, uh, I'm wondering, when you wrote that gun in back at the beginning, did you know where it was going to end up on the end? Did well, you, you mentioned Chekhov. I mean, that old went, that was an old saw, right? If you bring a gun on stage in Act One, it has to go off by Act Three. Um, yeah, so sure, certainly I had some inkling that that gun was going to go off. Yeah. But did you know where, when? No. No. Interesting. Well. One of the things I think that this book does very well, it's a, it's a wonderful kind of reading experience. It's very immersive. It, it wraps us in these two worlds, in these two narratives, and does a fine job of bringing the voices and the action together, because the voices converge, too. Uh, Nathaniel's becomes more musical and, and merges, I think, in many ways with, with the other voice. So uh, just as in terms of the final, your final wash, your final varnish of this thing, how do you, as a reader, I know reader, people are happy to hear the word "final." You've been sitting, <laughs> you sitting a long time. Yeah. yeah. How do you experience the, uh, the this just the reading of it yourself? Can have, do you read the book at that point? On occasions like this. Yeah. <laughs> um, Does it ever surprise you? Always, I think. That's good. That's good. You know, I mean, uh, William Gaddis once said, "I mean, and this is, I think, it's really." great insight into artists of all sorts. He says, the novelist is the hulk that follows the work around. Um, you know, not, artists are not superior beings, as you know. They're just, but the work may sometimes shed some sublimity on life that would allow some people to think artists partake of that as well. Only as much as the work casts on us. Malamud used to say, when I write the work, I'm the writer. When I finish it, I just become another reader. Mm -hmm. There's a great um, interview, in the, and you, if, you, if you know the Paris Review interview series, fabulous interviews. It goes back almost 40 years to, and their interviews, or 50 years, interviews with Hemingway in the first editions, and Faulkner, and that's where Hemingway says that wonderful thing. That, well, all a writer needs is a built-in shockproof automatic shit detector. <laughs> <laughs> and Faulkner, the, the interviewer says to Faulkner, well, did you, in barn burning, that, that, did you put that in, that symbol in as you wrote it? And Faulkner is just absolutely straight faces. No, I wrote the piece and then put the symbol in later. <laughs> so. With that, maybe, Alan, do you want to talk a little bit about a couple books, or do we want to take some questions from the audience, or? Uh, do you, if you have questions, we, s yeah, sure. You mentioned the word, uh, you used the word dictation. Yeah. Uh, I guess your characters, you can get into the minds of your characters. I'm thinking about do you take dictation. You know, I mean, <coughs> again, Malamud used to say, be at your typewriter every morning at the same time, and somehow the words may come to you. And I always think of the cargo cult, you know, the cargo cults in, in uh, what is now Papua New Guinea. Um, the aboriginals saw this thing falling out of the sky in, in the early 1940s, and it broke open and spread all these things, food and tools across the, this mountaintop. And this, uh, they developed a cult, so anthropologists called it the cargo cult. They, groups of people would sit on these mountaintops and wait for more of these 
packages, these crates that the, the uh, Brits were parachuting down to supply their soldiers. They would wait for more to fall out of the sky. So it's, um, I'm, I wait every morning. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Different from what we might have expected if we'd thought about it yeah. rash in a rational way, yes. That, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and you know, that's sort of, for me, it's always the, the gift I get from something that's well written is that, that I get a better sense of who I am and, you know, and some of the nutty stuff that goes on around me. I, I agree, and I think, uh, I'm sure I'm not the first person who's said this, but, you know, you are not complete. We are not complete. We help complete ourselves by reading mm -hmm. and by listening to music and by and looking often, at art. And I've often thought that, that some of the struggles that we're having right now about, you know, what's going on in Congress and things has to do with, with our slave owner mentality mm -hmm. in terms of how we see other human beings. That if, if we could get clear of that, you know, that we're still living out that, that mentality that there are people that are to be used and there are people that are worthy. Mm -hmm. and yes. And, and Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Mm -hmm. And we're still, we're, still, we're still back in, you know, 1850. Mm -hmm. I think that's the Presbyterian streak in us. Puritans, <laughs> the doctrine of the elect that we're thinking of more than anything else. Of course, that was a handy rationalization for slavery, but it was predated. Well, yes, but, but, you know, the, you might say the you know these the uh, Muslims who owned slaves might have held that view, but the African slaveholders I mean they had a certain hierarchy, but it was it not related specifically in most cases to to their theology. True, but I'm thinking of a particular uh, sort of evil form of it mm -hmm. in the Calvinist sense. Yeah, absolute right. Right. Well, the Calvinists they also did not admit art. They're Neoplatonist Christians, right? Art is useless. Um, so, no, go on. When you read your own work after, afterwards, are you ever surprised by what you found? Mm -hmm. No, I'm surprised by the yeah. fact that I could do anything. Well, you did it. You did it, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm a painter, and I was with a friend, and we were looking at art, and I saw a piece of art, and I said, that's really good. I wonder who did it. She looked at me really strangely and said, boy, that's, you did it. But at least I knew it was good, but I didn't know yeah. it was good. Yeah, I think, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a mystery. Um, I mean, you, you, um, you read and read and read, and you write and write and write, and you live and live and live, and somehow it all comes together, somehow. But to come back to the Puritans, you know, they're horrible people. And, and um, it, it's just you know, a curse, Faulkner said, a curse that we are descended from them. Um, maybe you can join me in my campaign to do away with the Star Spangled Banner as our national anthem <laughs> and replace it with uh, <coughs> um, 
Bob Dylan's Blind Willie McTell. I'll say part of the verse, yeah, part of the verse, um, if I can remember it. See the big plantations burning, hear the cracking of the whips. See the ghosts of tribes a-dying, see the ghosts of slavery ships. Smell the sweet magnolia blooming, hear the chantings. Hear the clanging of the hear the hear, hear the clang of the of slavery's bell. I know no one can sing the blues like Blind Willie McTell. Wouldn't that make a much better national anthem? <laughs> Join me in my campaign. Are there any other questions? Or? Well, Alan, let's give uh, some quick recommendations beyond your book, which I think anybody here can read and immerse themselves in and really enjoy. And that's one I think the tricks of your book, is it talks about some fairly difficult to deal with issues. I mean, this is, an, in a sense, when you think, oh. Oh, this is the part I like, selling somebody else's book. Yeah. <laughs> when you think about uh, slavery, it doesn't necessarily think page-turning and really enjoyable reading, you make that happen for us by virtue of, you know, your artistry with the language, with the plot, with the characters, and draw us in and put us in another world, and that's really enjoyable. So, um, beyond your book, what else do we have here? Um, this book's I like this spring, The Tiger's Wife by Taya Obrick. Some of you may have read it already. It's kind of a Kafka-esque in a way. And I thought, but, but she's a real prodigy. I, I'm not a big Kafka fan, so I'm not, I don't know that that's a compliment. Oh. <laughs> she's very young. She's a, she she she's 25 she and a half, like 26 15. now. Um, but uh, it's a brilliant uh, work of a of a brilliant prodigy. I yeah. highly recommend it. And there's a I mean there, there's a hunting scene in there that it will stay with me for the rest of my life. Where I won't tell you what happens in it, but the tiger's wife. The tiger's wife. Taya Obrate. Taya Obrate. First novel. Amazing first novel. The prose is really super. O B R E H T. She's uh, of Balkan descent. Yeah, she grew up in English, the Balkan. English second language. Right? Yeah, English is her third language. Third I think language. she spoke uh, Arabic because she was raised in uh, Egypt for a while when she came to the U.S. That's when you really feel <laughs> terrible. Um, it, it's, I mean, you're constantly wrestling with, with the language um, when you're writing, and you just know that you're never going to be as good as you want to be. Uh, David Van, for those of you who are want a, a are not. horror story about marriage <laughs> set in the winter in Alaska, <laughs> there'll be no musical soon. Uh, it's called Caribou Island. Uh, it's a very, very powerful book. It's truly, it's truly to terrorizing. About and a really husband who ba virtually enslaves the wife and forces her to live with him through this winter on this island in the Alaskan outback. Um, with suicide as a theme for reasons that of the, based on some of the author's own experience. And more of the, what does Chaucer say, the woe that is in Mariaja, but uh, with a, 
ultimately good outcome. Three Stages of Amazement by Carol Edgarian, which I, I really loved. You, you've read it, you liked it, yeah. Um, charming book and serious at the same time. Uh, set in San Francisco in Silicon Valley. Uh, it'll open windows on houses that you pass by when driving through the area. Uh, give you good insight into the lives of the, the very wealthy in San Francisco. But they are, they have lives too. <laughs> Prick them, do they not bleed? Tickle them, do they not laugh? Um, and uh, Ann Patchett's novel, State of Wonder. Um, I'd never read an Ann Patchett novel before. But this is wonderful. No. Oh, I may read Belcanto. But this is, this is wonderful. Set in the Amazon and uh, just wonderful book. And you can, she's married to a physician and she certainly took him for all his knowledge and <laughs> dramatized it very well in that book. About it's those rich people, you may prick them and bleed. And you may tickle them and laugh, but you tax them and they can cough up any money. So I'm, I'm, I'm just... Um, well, recent reviews, I just read this wonderful novel by Rudolfo Anaya called uh, Randy Lopez Goes Home. We didn't have a copy, so. and, um, and I'm reading, now I'm reading, I'm, I'm reading for fall now, and uh, there's some wonderful novels coming out in the fall. There's a new, uh, a new uh, Michael Ondaatje novel called The Cat's Table. Um, there's a new Stephen King, um, who's, I think, you know, a genius, the, the way Dickens was a genius. Um, I always thought he was the American genius. Dickens. He gets the common people the way I think Dickens got. Yeah, he's a narrative genius. There, a long time ago, Robert Penn Warren wrote an essay about Theodore Dreiser, whom we're all, we were all taught in school. He was a clumsy oaf of a writer. And he said, no. Dreiser's a genius, you just have to learn how to read him. And the way you read him is not by the sentence, not by the paragraph, not by the page, but by the scene. His dramatic scenes are, are made by a genius. And, and in, in a way, King does the same thing. Even though his language is clunky as hell and his psychology sometimes seems like it's somewhere around the sophomore year in college, but somehow he makes it working, scares the hell out of you. I remember the first time I read a Stephen King novel. I'll never forget it. Um, I, it was, uh, I was living in Knoxville, Tennessee with my second wife. And, um, and I picked up the novel and uh, lay on the couch in the living room reading this thing, afraid to put it down afraid to leave the room. The Stephen King flu, that's what I call it. Yeah. <laughs> you get, you get the, he you terrorized get me. <laughs> terrorized me. Anyway, so there's a new King coming out, and... Um, well, I, there's that uh, Heaven's Shadow. Heaven's Shadow, good science fiction novel. I, we disagree slightly about it. I, I, I call it Arthur Clarke Light. But, but that's but not a bad some, thing. there's some great NASA lore in it. Good, these guys, a pair of writers did it, and it, it's... Uh, Heaven's Shadows, first in a trilogy. If you want to get in on a trilogy, uh, now's the time. That That's out in the stores now, I think. I don't know. Um, they don't have it here yet, I don't think. You, you know. I think it's like next week. Um, and I'm trying to think of what, what else I'm working on. 
a novel by a, a, a writer named Robert Bausch, who is the novel writing twin of Richard Bausch, of whom you may know. Uh, Robert Bausch has published about 10, 12 books. Nobody knows who he is. He's overshadowed by his twin. He uh, was trying to find a publisher for what is, his, I think, his 12th or 15th novel. And he couldn't, nobody wanted to publish him. He didn't sell enough. So he s has self-published this novel with Amazon. Oh, through their? Through their publishing unit. Mm -hmm. you, and, and it's called In the Fall They Come Back. And it's about a, an earnest uh, uh, s private school teacher in Northern Virginia in the, f in the fall, mid, mid, in 1985, I guess, Reagan's president. And, and the lessons he learns trying to be a teacher and a good person in this s uh, school of misfits. Um, so I'm, I'm going to do that. I th it's, it's not precisely the first novel by a good writer that's come out uh, online. Uh, I think Robert Olin Butler has beat Robert Bausch to the punch because Narrative Magazine, which if, if you don't know it, you can go to their website, narrative.com. They, they're a story magazine, and they've also published a couple of full-length uh, manuscripts, and one of them was Robert Olin Butler's Snapshots. He wrote captions for a hundred interesting photographs. Um, that's the thing he's gotten uh, into. Um, he wrote a, a novel in the form of a, a series of stories in the form of postcards from odd places. And I think, I guess he'll do laundry lists next. But, um, <laughs> So I think technically, historically, that may be the first full-length work of fiction, even though it's about only about 100 pages long, that, that has come out online. But I, I recommend Robert Bausch's novel in the oh, fall. No, it's John Scalzi. Hmm? John Scalzi? The science fiction writer? science fiction writer. Did he do that? Yeah, it was, uh, oh. boy, um, it wasn't Old Man's War, but it was uh, huh. before that. And it was, uh, and it was really good. It got, it got published later as a hardcover or sold out immediately by uh, Subterranean Press. Huh. Well, there. I'm glad I mentioned it because now I can add that to our introduction <laughs> for this review. Um, it, it's bizarre. We were talking, Tamara and I were talking earlier. Um, is this the last bookstore? <laughs> um, how are you going to find out about books if you can't come in and browse? I wrote, I wrote an essay on browsing, uh, which I'd be happy to send to anybody who, who uh, emails me. My email address is on the, should be on the blurb of this. No? It should be in the, somewhere. Well, no mystery. Alan choose one word dot, co uh, dot, dot com. Uh, and I'll send you the browsing essay. And I wrote, of all places, for the Land's End catalog about 10 years ago. They were getting fancy and having writers write little essay-lets. Um, I mean, you go into a library, you don't want a digital catalog. You go into a library, you want to haunt the stacks. You, and, and you come into a bookstore and you want to browse. Um, so I, I don't think it's going to be the end of human curiosity, but it's going to be the end of one of the places where you can exercise your curiosity in, in, uh, in useful ways if, if all the bookstores close down. How else would you find out? You'll write, you'll read reviews, and honestly, I have to say that uh, I don't think the reviewing uh, business 
and it is a business, has really risen all that much higher in its standards since Grub Street first hired reviewers. Um, not everybody I know writes great reviews of their friends' work, but a lot of them do, or attacks enemies in reviews, or ignores books that they think should be ignored. Um, but I mean, if you have to find one or two reviewers whose taste you trust by unfortunately trying out what they recommend to you if, if there are no bookstores. Um, so support your local yeah, bookstore. Take a look and around pray. and pick up stuff that uh, looks interesting by virtue of the cover, by virtue of where you find it. Just by grabbing something, interesting title. But pay for it. Don't put it yeah, <laughs> buy it. Buying the books is important. Thank you for coming. Thanks for coming. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.